we rise to read our sermon text this morning, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Daniel. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you'll find the passage in a chairback Bible that should be in front of you. And a new year brings a new study. As we spent most of last year in the book of Acts in the New Testament, we turn to something about a 12-week-long study through the 12 chapters of Daniel, beginning this morning with chapter 1. So let me I read those 21 verses for us and, and pray for God's blessing on our study, and then we'll begin together. So listen as God once again speaks to you now through his perfect word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of God's house, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish and of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature, in the language of the Chaldeans, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, and Hananiah he called Shadrach, and Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat at the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate at the king's food. And the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as for the four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. 
Father, we thank you that you are faithful to speak to us through your word and ask that your spirit would fill us this morning, that we might hear this truth and respond to it with obedience, that in hearing we would always practice what you require of us as we want to look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, and we pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. It was August 24th, 410 A.D. Uh, One of the most significant events in human history happened. Some of you who are savvy with history classes might know what that event was. August 24th, 410. It was when Rome was sacked. The Roman Empire that had long held sway over the watching modern world was vanquished and vanished in an instant. Such a city that had belonged to a thousand years of peace, prosperity, and power. It's all wiped away. So one ancient historian named Jerome would say, if Rome can perish, what can be safe? And one of the leading preachers and certainly leading theologian in the Christian world at that time was a pastor who was pastoring God's people in Hippo, and his name was Augustine. And he was thoroughly ensconced in a variety of ways in the Roman Empire of his time. He loved its language, he loved its literature, he loved its stories and histories, and he saw it all fade away. And he didn't really know what to do. If Rome could perish, was anyone safe? Augustine had spent the previous decades of his life thinking that the modern world was just expanding in its glory to Jesus Christ, where he might say in one of his works, it seems like soon enough the whole world would be nothing more than one praise chorus to the king. And then it all crumbles. Everything shatters. It all disappears. And so he began to respond as Augustine was normally prone to respond. He began to write. And he wrote and wrote for a few years. And eventually all those writings came together in a book that he called The City of God, one of the best-known books in all of Christian history. It's a book that's rather long. Some of you might even have it at home or perhaps on an electronic device uh, recognizing it is very, very long, but it's got a very simple central purpose. All it means to tell us is human history is little more than the clash of two kingdoms, what he would call two cities. It's a conflict that belongs to the city of man. And the city of God. And if you put that in the language of biblical theology, it's a war between Jerusalem and Babylon. It's a war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. How do God's people live in the midst of such warfare? Well, we turn to a book this morning, don't we, that will occupy us, Lord willing, for the next few months. This book of Daniel that speaks about that clash, that conflict that belongs to Jerusalem and Babylon. It's a book that shows us God's sovereignty over the war that belongs to the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Even as what we're going to see this morning, it helps us understand how God's people are to live in Babylon and how the Lord even reigns over Babylon. Babylon being one of the most ordinary ways that the Bible speaks about the world in which we live. So if you know the story of Daniel well, you would know that it's 12 chapters long and it divides nicely into two six-chapter halves. The the first six chapters are full of history that tends to excite many ordinary Christians. And the second half of the book belongs six chapters primarily of prophecy and apocalyptic language that tends to exasperate many normal students of Scripture. 
because many people don't know exactly what Daniel is talking about in the back half of the book. And you might have grown up in a Sunday school setting like I did, kids, where uh, you learn to love Daniel. You love these stories about these three friends that weren't consumed in a fire. This humbling of a great king, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, a hand appearing magically, mysteriously writing a prophecy on a wall. Or, of course, who can forget this man that stands in the lion's den all night long and is just there hanging out with those vicious predators with each passing hour totally unharmed. And then you might be like me also, that eventually you grow up, get older, you read through the Bible more and more, and you realize there's a lot more to Daniel than most people seem to realize you got this back half of the book that maybe means that you respond to Daniel much like Daniel himself did in chapter 12, verse 8. I hear, but I don't understand what I'm hearing. And what I hope we'll see along the way in our study of Daniel is not just that the Lord allows us to hear truth we need to hear, but of course help us understand truth that we need to understand. Because what we see in Daniel chapter 1 is a very simple text. It's simply telling us, that we need to give consideration this morning to a theme of what it means to be faithful in exile. That's the simple theme this morning, faithfulness in exile. And we'll think about that in a variety of different ways, but what you need to know right from the outset is that we find principally this man named Daniel, his three friends, and they're outside of the promised land. They're in a place that's not their home. Uh, They've been basically part of this exile that's taken in various spheres and various scenes and various ways, uh, God's people to a land that is in every way hostile to belief in the Lord, and it's still possible, they show us, to be faithful in exile. So what I want us to see in our, 23, our 21 verses this morning is three simple parts about this exile. I want you to see its setting. I want you to see a scheme that was going on in Babylon before we give attention in the back half of the text to the stand that belonged to Daniel in that exile. So first of all, the setting of exile. Look again, verse 1, chapter 1. We're told that it happens in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And one of the nice things about studying Daniel is that we get these very precise historical references, historical events that allow us to kind of understand exactly when this happened in human history. And kids and students, you always need to know when you come to that back part of the Old Testament, full of all of these prophets, it sometimes is one of the most vital things you can do early on is seek to understand the original context to that prophet's ministry. And so what it's telling us right from the outset here with the setting of verse 1, it happens in 605 B.C., that Nebuchadnezzar comes and he lays seeds to Jerusalem. And the king at the time was this man named Jehoiakim. And kids, the only thing you need to know about Jehoiakim is that he was just a rotten king. He was one of the bad guys in the southern kingdom that ruled over God's people. If you know anything about his story, he began to reign when he was 25 years old, and his leadership of the country was nothing more than continuing its rapid decline in idolatry and iniquity to such an extent that 2 Chronicles 36 tells us the Lord's wrath was rising and it had come to a point of no remedy. And what the rest of the New Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Testament would tell us is that what was happening really is the Lord's covenant curses were finally falling upon his people for their disobedience and their unrepentance. 
as Deuteronomy 28, verse 26 through 36 essentially tell us, it's, it was a promise of God, a threat of God, that if that disobedience and unrepentance continued for so long, like it had by this point in 605 B.C., what was going to happen is God was going to exile them from the promised land. He was going to kick them out of the place of His presence. They were going to go to a place that wasn't their own. They were going to be made to submit to a king that wasn't of their own choosing. They are going to be surrounded by gods and idols that, of course, were false and full of iniquity. And so you get the further part of the truth is not just only that God's people were carted off by Nebuchadnezzar. He also carted off God's possessions. Look at the back half of verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar took some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, if there was something like you know, a Babylonian news network of that ancient Near Eastern world, uh, you, you can be sure that what they would have been doing is showing these scenes of these religious vessels, God's possessions from his temple in Jerusalem, now set up in front of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. Because in that ancient world, they don't do what, of course, we do in our modern world today, uh, of separate gods or a god from the nation, a god from the country, gods from the kingdom. They were one and the same. So that Babylonian news network, as they would have rejoiced over the fall of Jerusalem, what they also would have been rejoicing over was the destruction, as they saw it, of the god of Judah, of this one called Yahweh. You want to see how powerful we are here in Babylon? We take his religious objects his vessels of devotion, and we set them up before our pagan kings. They would understand at this time in this setting that it wasn't just the case that Judah had lost, but Yahweh had lost as well. And I wonder if you've ever reached a point in your life where you look out perhaps in the church nearby us, the church far from us throughout the world, and if, if you ever think that maybe the body of Christ the church of the Lord is, is losing its battle in the world. Uh, maybe it's only a few years away from collapse and even disappearance. But what Daniel's here to tell us, among the many things we'll see along the way this morning, is that sometimes when the church appears to collapse, it appears to be destroyed. It's actually nothing more than the outworking of God's judgment upon his people. The outworking of a covenant word that threatened them for a lack of devotion. So the setting here is this one of exile. And I want you to see now the, the scheme that happened there in exile in verses 3 through 7. With these young men mentioned, four friends that belonged to the royal family evidently, or at least the nobility there in Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I was speaking with a student recently, and somehow we got talking about professing Christians in Germany during the 1930s. And the student asked me, like, how, how is it possible that so many professing Christians during that rise of Hitler's Third Reich seem to give so easily to Hitler's demands and to uh, the Nazis' regime? And if you know anything about what happened there, it was largely because, or at least one of the answers, certainly was the powerful propaganda machine that belonged to Germany in the 1930s. By the age of 10, an ordinary child would be more or less, not taken from their home, but 
indoctrinated into what was known as the Hitler Youth. And so each and every morning they would rise and they would go into a building where posters of the Fuhrer would be hanging in celebration and adoration. They would open books. There would be these tales and stories of children amazed and enthralled at meeting the leader Hitler himself. Even toys were part of the propaganda program, designed and specifically employed to increase the appreciation of militarism in the nation. They knew that if they could indoctrinate the youth, if the propaganda machine could catch them, they would turn the tide for the next generation. And the reason I tell you that is because what you get in verses one through, I'm sorry, verse three through seven is Nebuchadnezzar's propaganda machine. And it has three specific parts. First, isolation. Notice verse three to four. The king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of his some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance. Skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. The king says, take the best of the best and isolate them from all of their friends. Take them away from all of their family. And rip them out of the place where they are comfortable and might be able to remain devoted to the God of Judah. It's not just isolation. You'll see it's also indoctrination. The end of verse 5 tells us they were to be educated for three years. And what the verse preceding it says in verse 4 is the literature and language of the Chaldeans. A 36-month indoctrination uh, that was meant to separate them from the worship and worldview of the Israelites. It was meant to increase their appreciation of that which belonged to the rule there in Babylon. What Nebuchadnezzar said was true. And it's not just isolation, indoctrination. You'll see even significantly in verse 6 and 7, what we might call identification. As you'll see a number of names listed there in those two verses. Uh, you might have heard stories before about a child who uh, was kidnapped at a young age and was placed into some sort of cult-like atmosphere. And they began to be isolated, of course, from their family indoctrinated into unique beliefs uh, of that group. And almost invariably, if you know these stories, not terribly long after the isolation and indoctrination comes a renaming of the person. Because it's meant to redefine who they are. And that renaming of a person isn't just merely reorientation. If you know these things well, it's also disorientation. It's meant to confuse and to confound and the reason why the author to Daniel calls out in verse 6 and 7 these names is to show us the degree to which the scheme there in exile was meant to shift these four men to the world of Babylon. Because uh, the names there, you see, of course, Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, all of those names in the original Hebrew would have a link to Yahweh or, or to the Lord meaning something like the Lord is gracious or Yahweh helps or who is my God or God is judge. And the chief of eunuchs decides, I'm going to rename them all according to these pagan Babylonian gods, Bel and Nabu, whose names we need not even worry about ourselves with at the end of verse 7. But it's here that we find this scheme belonging to these four boys. As best we can tell, according to the dates there in Daniel, they're probably something like 15 years old. The best of the best in Judah, isolated. The best of the best from Judah, indoctrinated. The, the best of the best from Judah, now identified by pagan deities. And I do trust that you know, and you need 
me, you don't need me to tell you that we, of course, live in a world today, don't we, that is likewise interested in indoctrinating, isolating, even re-identifying God's people in the Christian faith itself. Doesn't the Bible tell us that we war against a foe, a fiend who reigns as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work at the sons of disobedience, who is always eager to ensure that your worship, uh, your worldview, moves from that of the Lord to that of the world? Again, you surely don't need me to tell you the simple yet subtle and significant ways in which your enemy does this. Sports can do it. Screens do it. Schools do it. Worldly success, power, pleasures, it all does it. Meant to numb you to the things of the Lord. Is it possible? This is a question that belongs to any student of Daniel. Is it possible for God's people to remain faithful in the midst of such a scheming, strategizing exile? Well, the third part of our text in its last half tells us, yes, it is possible. Because you want to see the stand there in exile. Notice verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Uh, You could pull it out later on this morning if you wanted to, but you would see in our large denominational hymnal, There's only one hymn in all of the hundreds of hymns in our hymnal that belongs to the book of Daniel. Some of you might know what it is. Maybe you sang it in years or decades past. It simply is, Dare to be a Daniel is the title. It's got three verses, a chorus that belongs to it. You might know the chorus. It says, Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. And you're not going to understand this daring resolve of Daniel's dietary request if you don't see the chief of eunuchs' response first in verse 10. You see, he says to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned you food and drink. Or why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths that are of your own age so you would endanger my head with the king? It's a daring request that Daniel asks for here with this dietary change. And what you need to recognize is that even with Daniel's request and his resolve, we really don't know why he made it. As much as people might say, they know why he made it. It's possible that the food that they were being required to eat there at the king's table, Daniel knew was food that was declared unclean in the Old Testament. And therefore, it would have been wrong to eat it. Probably, most likely, it would have been food, it seems like, in the context of this book, that would have been offered to idols. It was part of the pagan religious practice of the time in Babylon, and Daniel says we can't eat that. It could even be simply just a symbolic gesture, recognizing that table fellowship is its own form of cooperation. It's its own form of even communion. To sit at the king's table on the king's terms would seem to itself signal total assimilation into the Babylonian world. So maybe he just wants to resist it for that reason. Or perhaps it could be something as simple as Daniel's trying to find a place where he can, yes, cooperate with his rulers there in exile, but not compromise entirely. And so he's discerned, here's a place where I can draw a line in the sand that we can make sure that we're passing along the reality to the leaders here in Babylon, that we're not just going to stand for everything they're shoving at us. Uh, Whatever the reason is, he simply says, uh, we're not going to eat that. Can we eat something else? Can we have vegetables and water? More literally, vegetables there is just seeds. So I don't even know what the diet totally looked like. And you'll see, of course, in verse 
12, he asks simply for a 10-day test. Let us, so me and my three friends, it seems like, let us eat this and drink that. Let everyone else at the king's table keep on doing what the king has asked them to do and just compare us at the end of the 10-day test and let's see what happens. And then you'll see, of course, in verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate at the king's food. So it seems like they've passed the test. Clearly enough, verse 16 tells us the steward took away their food and wine that they were drinking and gave them vegetables. And I grew up in a church setting that liked to joke that this was the proof text, verse 16 of Daniel chapter 1, for parents whenever their children didn't want to eat vegetables at the dinner table. Just slide across the truth of God's word. See, you must eat vegetables. (laughs) But of course, it doesn't mean that. Well, we need to know whatever it precisely meant in that original context. In a summary-like fashion, it meant Daniel's taking a stand here, isn't he? Why he's taking it, we can't totally be sure. That he took it, we can be sure. That he's wanting to take a stand to be faithful in the midst of the exile. It's possible for God's people in the midst of their exile to be faithful. I've always tried to pay attention for a variety of different reasons to... The, the kinds of books that are published, the kinds of books not only that are published, but also that tend to sell quite well. And I've looked at those lists now for over a century. Not that I've been alive for over a century, but I've looked back over a century at these lists. And oh, what's interesting, you may know this, some of you having lived a number of those decades, for about the last 100 years, certainly compared to previous centuries in church history, there's a rapid rise of publications on the book of Daniel. For much of the 20th century, uh, the reason for the interest reignited in Daniel was actually related to the back half of Daniel, as prophetic interest dominated much of Western Christianity, trying to understand what it was that Daniel was precisely saying about where we are in the state of human history and how God is ruling over all things as we're looking to the end of all things. But in the last 20 to 30 years, as even more books on Daniel have been published, What we've seen is less of an interest in those books on the prophetic portions of Daniel and much more of an interest in what Daniel means to people like us in the Western world. So, for example, one of the more recent books would say this, quote, The author writes, I sense a significant shift in the mentality of God's people. And by that, I don't mean a change in how the people of vague religious spiritual interests are feeling or even how church attenders are feeling but in how those who are committed to serving Jesus and obeying his word are feeling. He says this, Many of us appear to be completely overwhelmed by the reality that we are no longer a majority and our views are no longer considered acceptable or even expressible. That's because the wind has changed. And while I love that author and agree with much of what he actually just said, I could count you to pointless saints throughout the centuries that would look at people like us and say, what do you mean now suddenly you're exiles because of what's happened in the last 20 to 30 years? Wouldn't William Tyndale want a word from us in the 16th century? Wouldn't even Augustine want a word from us in the 5th century? Wouldn't even the Apostle Peter want a word from us, spirit-inspired, from the 1st century as he addresses Christians as what? Sojourners and exiles. No matter what decade you find yourself in, Daniel speaks to exiles, what it means to live faithfully, 
Not now, all of a sudden, because of cultural and political realities, we find ourselves in an exilic identity. But no, we always have had an exilic identity as God's people here on earth. For we live in a world that's not our own. We live in a world that is under the prince of the power of the air, the New Testament tells us. Who means, of course, to destroy and even deliver us to his schemes. So, the question I have here at the end as we begin to close is how is it precisely, according to this chapter, that God's people are to be faithful in the midst of their exile? Let me just give you two simple truths from Daniel chapter 1. Living faithfully in exile means, number one, showing noticeable devotion to the Lord. Noticeable devotion to the Lord. It's clear, of course, in the passage that we've already read, this part of the chapter, that Daniel had particular courage to stand up and to stand out as belonging to the Lord. But it's not just courage that belongs to godliness and holiness in exile. It's also wisdom. Look at verse 18 through 20. It says, At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom, and understanding about which the king inquired, he found them ten times better than all in his kingdom. So again, if we're, if we're dating this right, we're speaking of, of teenage young men standing out as singular in exile. Some of you in the room today, you're approaching your teenage years. Some of you are soon to end your teenage years. Would you be like a 15-year-old Daniel that stands up and stands out with noticeable devotion to the Lord. A new spring semester is going to begin for many of you students, and is it going to bring you months, next few weeks, of standing up and standing out? Even for one, wonder, if, for those of you in the room who are adults, if in your workplace, in your neighborhood, perhaps on the sports team of your child, do you stand up and stand out with notable, noticeable devotion to the Lord? Surely there's a reason why, if you read any old sermon on Daniel chapter 1, almost exclusively all such old sermons are all about the need for God's people to live with noticeable holiness in the midst of their life here on earth. But Daniel chapter 1 is less about Daniel's noticeable devotion. And it's telling us something actually about God. And that leads to the second point about living faithfully as exiles. It's not just showing noticeable devotion. It means it's also showing noticeable dependence upon the Lord. Because the text strikes, doesn't it, this consistent note of God's sovereignty in the setting of exile. Look at verse 2, 9, and 17. So verse 2 begins, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Skip down to verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. God gave them everything they needed, those that he had given in to exile. One commentator rightly writes, one of the striking central realities of Daniel is the theme running through the whole book is the fortunes of kings. The affairs of men are subject to God's decrees and that he is able to accomplish his will despite the most determined opposition of the mightiest potentates on earth. And I can show you that quite easily and simply. Look at the last verse of our passage. Funnily enough, it just tells us Daniel was there. 
until the first year of King Cyrus. Funny enough, that's some 60 years in the future. Funny enough, it's King Cyrus that's going to show up and overthrow Babylon. Funny enough, a kingdom rises, it falls. Funny enough, a king rises and falls. And God's people still remain. Because the Lord delivers his people. Don't you know we have the same comfort from our Lord Jesus Christ? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. I'm the good shepherd. And everyone the Father puts into my hands, I'm not going to lose a single one of them. Why can we be so confident in the midst of our exile here on earth? It's because, it's of course, that Jesus Christ himself was faithful in an exile, wasn't he? As he came down from heaven, his life was perfect. His death was perfect. The Father's deliverance was perfect. So that while kingdoms rise and fall, the kings come and, and kings go, God's people in Jesus Christ can still be faithful in exile, for he'll sustain them through all the trials and the troubles. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have shown us your steadfast love in Jesus Christ and that we who are so often faithless know that the King is faithful for us and is always guiding us, sustaining us by his Spirit. Let us know what it means to be dependent upon you this week. Let us even show forth in the Spirit's power those fruits of devotion, knowing that we're awaiting our heavenly homecoming in the midst of our earthly exile. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.